four phases of fundraising. This is crucial. Number one is prospecting. And prospecting means who's out there who I should be talking to. Are you all aware of the various websites in England? Funder Finder, Funding Central, Funding Information, etc. You all know about all of those. If you don't, I have a list up here. I got it off Google, so you could too, but I have it up here. After the thing, just come up and write them down. But a whole list of where do you find the names of donors in England for the arts. All right? It exists online. All right? So you just can come up and copy it afterwards. Okay? There are a whole bunch. Um, and I'm also asking the Arts Council to make this available. All right? But it's nothing secret. This is no secret document of list of donors. All right? We create a very simple chart for our prospects, but it's a really helpful chart for us to figure out what we're going to do with each donor. Who is the donor? Individual, trust, corporation. What do we think are their main giving interests? That we can get online. We also are constantly going to every museum we see and writing down all the names off the walls. And every time I go to performance, I'm ripping out the donor page. I hope you are too. It's a great way. To, if, you're, if you're new to fundraising, it's a great technique. You're new, right? Every time you go to a performance, just rip out the page of, of donors and start to put them online. And just make a list. You'll start to make your own catalog of who you think is out there who might fund. Okay? How much we think they might give. This is a guess or a range. Whenever I write a proposal, I typically include three options. Unless we've agreed on something ahead of time, I do three options. The low option, which I know they can do easily, the option I think is most likely, and then the stretch option, the one I would love them to do, but maybe they're not ready for. And I learn from doing this a couple times with one donor where they sort of see themselves. And I keep them trying to move them up. And then very importantly, who is the right prospector? Who is the right person to talk to this person? Is it you, the development person? Is it you, the CEO? Is it you, an artist? Is it you, a board member? Who's the right person to open the door with the donor? And we review, we've got this for lots and lots of donors, and we review this chart every single week. Do we have it right? Who have we gone to? Who should we give up on? Because one of the key things in fundraising is just to pick your winners and your losers. You give up and you lose. Don't try banging your head against the wall. Hmm? On the other hand, you start seeing some progress and you start to move them up the chart. We've got to get to those quickly. But who the person is is really, really crucial. Now, some of you are going to say, and a lot of you are going to say, that our, my board doesn't really like to get involved with fundraising. I know we're in transition with boards in this country, I see anyway. Boards are a lot more involved now than they were 15 years ago but maybe less involved than they're going to be 15 years from now. Here's my technique for getting board members involved. Number one, do really good institutional marketing. Board members are always happier to be involved if they're really feeling proud of the organization. But then here's where the trick comes in. What I do with this thing is I sit down with each board member, and I'm talking about all the kinds of exciting things we're, we're planning. And I look for the one that excites them. You know how fortune tellers look into your eyes and they say, you're going on a trip. No, 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 you're not going on a trip. You're going to buy a boat. No, no, you're not buying a boat. You know that other thing? Well, that's sort of what I'm doing. I'm talking about all these options, all these things we're talking about. And I look for the one that really gets that board member excited. And they'll tell me. And they'll say, 
this one's really interesting, I love that. And then I'll say, I'd love your help. Then I got them. Then what I do is it's not that they run the project, but I invite them to rehearsals or I let them meet the set designer or they get to look at the models or they, if it's an educational program, they come into class and they see the teachers or whatever it is. I let them participate in that project. I let them be a fly on the wall for that project. They get, over time, really attached to that project if I do my job well. And by the way, that's where my monthly phone calls come in or my monthly meetings. I'm getting them involved in that project. So like once a month, I want them to get an update. That's how, it's not like just a force thing. It sort of happens organically because they're involved in this project. When that board member gets really excited by this project, we're creating a new ballet and he's really excited by this new ballet and he gets to meet the choreographer and he comes to some rehearsals and everything. He wants this thing to be a success. He starts telling his friends about it. I really need you to come. You really want to come to it. It's going to be wonderful, blah, blah. He starts to become a magnet for family members about that project. He starts giving me new people into my funnel. He's starting to be the prospector for, for that project. And he's getting me a bunch of names. Then the next board member has another project they're interested in. She's interested in an educational program. I'm letting her meet the teacher. She's coming to see the classes. She just loves the way the students are learning. She wants some of her friends to see that too. She brings them along. Now she's being a prospector for that project. And if I can start replicating that, board member after board member after board member, two things happen. One, I got lots and lots of new prospects to talk to. And two, my board is now really getting excited by my mission, by my work, and not just by my financials. Yes. It's a question about um, boards in the States and whether or not they differ from boards in the UK. They do. A lot of the people on my board, I think, do it not because they are passionate about the work that we do, but out of a sense of social responsibility. So they're lawyers or they're um, finance people who want to pay back. And I think some of them would struggle to talk about the work that we do with the kind of passion that's required. I think that's true in the States too, or maybe not to the same extent. I think it's more an expectation of what their role is on the board of a British arts organization, which I do believe is changing. But I believe traditionally it was we're an overseer. We watch the way the federal, the government money is being spent. We're, we're, we're blessing the plans as opposed to feeling involved and deep. I'm seeing it change in this country, not on every board and not with every person, but I am seeing it change because we need that to change. We need our boards to get more involved. And I think it's up to us to, to make that transition. You are all pioneers in this effort. Seriously, it's, it's, it's a new view of what a board might be. And I think it is changing. I'm not trying to turn this into America. And I, believe me, I don't think the American model is the best model. It's just a model. It just happens to be a model that a lot of people are looking at now as they try and replace government funding with private funding. But I do believe boards that are more involved and more engaged is a good thing. And you know, surprisingly, I've gotten lawyers and people who may not seem like they'd be passionate about ballet to actually get excited about some part of what we do. I don't believe a board member needs to be excited about everything we do. I just want to find something that we do that will engage them. Does that make sense? Yeah. And not necessarily everything we do. Um, but I believe we turn our board members financially to the financials because we talk about financials so much. 
I don't know about your board meetings, I've been to lots of organizations' board meetings, but they tend to be 80% about money. Cash flow, income statements, balance sheets, who we owe money to, et cetera. And not about the work. I stop every board meeting in the middle at the Kennedy Center and we have a performance. I have a singer, I have a chorus, I have a children's ensemble, I have a dance company, we have whatever it is, they come in and they perform because I've got to bring the minds of my board back to our real mission. Our mission is not the money. The money we need to do the mission, but we don't measure success in the for-profit world by money, we measure success by whether we're pursuing our mission. And it's hard for a lot of board members because they come from the for-profit sector. And it's so easy to measure success in the for-profit sector because you are for-profit. And that's so simple a measure. In the not-for-profit sector, we only know what we're not for. <laughs> but what are we for? That's our mission. That's why <coughs> mission statements are so crucial. But it's why we have to make sure our boards really stay on mission. And my approach to getting people involved in each project helps me with that because it's not that any one board member loves everything, but collectively they love a lot. And they, they really start to feel closer to who we are. Boards have five, board members have, board members' roles and responsibilities change over time. You know that we have a life cycle. And when you start an arts organization, your board, typically it's started by an artist with a vision, and your board acts like the staff. They do the bookkeeping, they do the marketing, they sell the costumes, whatever it is, because there is no staff. But as the organization grows and matures, the role of the board changes. And we need the people to change as well. And unfortunately, boards are not so good at changing themselves over time. When I got to Alvin Ailey, we had 36 board members, as I mentioned. Almost half had been on the board for 35 years. They weren't the right governors. I had to change the structure of my board. Otherwise, we weren't going to survive. When the organization gets mature, board members have five key roles. One, they approve and participate in the development of the plans for the organization, the overall plans. Number two, they approve and have to understand the budget. And a lot of boards approve budgets without understanding them. As long as the total expenses go up less than 5%, they're going to approve it in too many cases. Number three, they hire, fire, and compensate the people who report directly to them. Number four, they participate in fundraising. They don't run fundraising. They participate in fundraising. And number five, they serve as ambassadors for the organization and the community. And that one to me is, they serve as ambassadors for the organization in the community. And I have to tell you, I've met many board members of many arts organizations all over the world, including this country, and a lot of them are pretty lousy ambassadors. They say the nastiest things about the organization. We had the worst board meeting, that executive doesn't know what they're doing, we're running out of money, oh, will you give us a thousand pounds? <laughs> you know, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Those five roles are really crucial, and, and I, and I I would really like for you to think about them because it's the reason I said earlier, and a lot of you laugh knowingly, that I like larger boards. Because I like to have more people participate in fundraising and more people serve as ambassadors rather than fewer. But I don't want a board so large that I can't have my monthly conversations. That's how I know my board's too big. 
when I got to the Royal Opera House, I had seven members of my board. It was too small, too small a board for an organization with 75 million pounds of turnover. Not enough support, not enough help, not enough ambassadors out there. So I do prefer a, a larger board than that. Yes, there was a question. Here's your microphone. How important do you think it is that those individuals are donors themselves? I think it's really important that every board member do something demonstrable for an organization. <coughs> that does not necessarily mean having to give money, although it's lovely if they do. But I don't believe in board members just sitting in lumps, coming three times a year to a meeting, and that's their board service. I think they should do something for us, help us with something. Some board members get really involved in the financial side of things, helping you know, to do the actual accounting or helping to understand the finances. That's a real contribution. And I value that tremendously. Other board members really help us address a certain community that we would like to, to address. We would like to make inroads into the Latino community. How do we get to know them? And someone really helps us do that. That's a real contribution. But just sitting there is not enough. I don't think to occupy a board space. To me, board spaces are absolutely precious. All right, that's number one. <laughs> number two is very important, and that's cultivation. And cultivation is something that I think beginning fundraisers do too little of. We go from hearing about someone to asking for the money. If I walk up to you in the street and say, would you give me a thousand pounds? You'd think I was crazy. But we do that all the time. We don't take time to really cultivate a relationship. So for me, I really want to take time for someone to get to know me, get to know my organization, come to other kinds of projects to see how we do things before I really make a serious ask. And to me, this is something we leave off. Number three is the actual solicitation. This is where we make the actual ask. And I find if you've done a really good job with cultivation, making the ask is not so difficult. Because they're part of you now. They care about you. They're excited by you. They know you. They trust you. It's hard to make the ask if you've never met someone before. And number four, and this is also crucial, is stewardship. This is what do we do after they give us a gift. This is making sure we really treat each donor specially, that we let the donors feel warm and loved, and that we don't get, take the money and run away from them, which a lot of organizations do. They get the gift, and they don't see the, the people again for another year. Worst thing in the world. That's the starting point. Take the money. Don't just say thank you in a thousand ways, and then don't talk about the money again. Just talk about the wonderful things you do for another year until you ask for money. Actually, ask every 11 months. That way, every 12 years, you get a 13th gift. So it's a good thing. Right? This all takes time. Rule 7. This all takes time. That's why, one of the reasons why, I love this. I have the time to do this. For my India festival, which when it started, after, I knew it would be in five years. All of my staff knew about this. We have, we have group discussions about the art we're planning. And we also talk as it changes. We took a year and a half, two years, just in identifying prospects. Who's out there who might fund this? We took the next amount of time, year and a half, two years, to actually cultivate those people and figure out who, could be, who, who seems to care about us, who, who can we get into the door, who seems to like what we do. And it was just towards the end that we got the money. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
Yes. That's true in life. We're always planning the project before we know we have the money. But if you've done good prospecting and you're doing good cultivation, you get a sense in the cultivation process when someone's, sorry, when someone's not interested at all. You, you, get, you start to get a sense they're never going to do anything. And you're starting the conversation about what you need and who they know could help. You, know, you start to have those conversations, but you don't make the formal ask a little bit later on. In that project, we got some from the Indian American community. I know that's of interest to you, but a lot of it came from India. A so, but was that, that part took of a your lot strategy? Of that was part of your strategy? Absolutely. Um, we identified those Indian corporations who were interested in building a relationship in the U.S. We found, we built a relationship with the Indian government that paid a, a portion of this cost. Um, we, we built lots of relationships that were not local. And that's doable. It really is doable. It just means it takes time. Since you're farther from them geographically, it's a little harder to convince them that you're trustworthy and that you're going to deliver. But if you've done one great project, then they're going to be a little bit more comfortable that you can deliver the next great project. And if you do great institutional marketing for yourself, they're going to feel a little comfortable that you can develop it for them as well, particularly true of corporate donors, which we'll get to in a minute. Yes? Um, I don't know how much this happens in America, and I presume it does, but I know it happens quite a lot here. And it happened to us twice last year in that we gave presentations to private philanthropists, invited and introduced, which were incredibly successful. And there were two donors at two separate events who both in front of witnesses and in writing promised quite significant sums of money. Six months later, they still haven't delivered the money. Mm -hmm. And I think we've, been, we've taken advice and we've been very, very careful how we've dealt with it. Um, and I'm not saying it's dead, but um, what do you do? when that happens? Cry, number one. Yeah. <laughs> Haven't done that yet. <laughs> um, I take a very particular view of this, which is if someone promised me something doesn't deliver, I am relatively non-aggressive about getting the resource. And I'll tell you why. Because others are watching me. And if I for example, in this last recession, there were people who made promises to us who couldn't fulfill them because their businesses started to do very badly. They had real personal problems. Others watched how I handle this. If I go after them, and in a very public way, and I'll give an example of that, and if I go after them and try and get their money, and people, other people see that, they get a little nervous that I'm going to do it to them if they ever have a bad time. My approach is rather to do what I can to get the money, to be very kind in this process, to try and extend the amount of time they have to give me the money, because I'd rather get it later than never. And then sometimes you just don't get it. Yeah. But I've had cases with some donors where they have seen me be more humane than others. And when they got some of their money back, I got it, and others didn't. That's 
that's what I've been doing, being very supportive. Very and supportive and kind. I don't think it makes sense to get lawyers calling and all this kind of stuff. Some people do that. The Metropolitan Opera took someone's name right off of one of their rooms and, you know, it's to me a very aggressive act and I think it resonates with other donors. So I'm very careful about that. Hmm. Uh, but it does happen. It's a minority of the time. You're very bad luck to have two big ones in one year <laughs> and, I, and I sympathize with that. But it's not, that's not common, I'd say, to have a big chunk of money. More likely to happen is a project, which none of you asked about this, which is what happens when a project gets canceled, which it can happen for a lot of reasons. The artist can die, lose interest, whatever. Um, I had a project we were building. When I got to the Kennedy Center, the government had this notion of taking the front of our building and turning it into a large plaza with two other buildings and a whole new road system, et cetera. And it was a very interesting project to me because I thought we could connect better geographically to downtown. The roads would be better. And also, I, I knew what I wanted to do in these buildings. It was going to be a public-private partnership. The government was going to pay to build the plaza and move the roads. We were going to pay for the two buildings and they were expensive. And I had already gone out and raised $150 million. And then because of challenges in the government, all kinds of projects got canceled and this project got canceled. And I had to give back the $150 million, which is the exact opposite of never getting it. It's of having to give it back. <laughs> and believe me, yes, I cried a lot. <laughs> but you know, when you build that relationship with a donor that I'm talking about, when you have this conversation, when something goes wrong, you're just honest about it and say, this went wrong. And they get you. And they say, OK, we understand. I didn't cancel that project. It had to get canceled. I gave them the money back. All of the donors to that project are still donors of ours. And they know that that got canceled through no doing of ours. But it's because we had this long-term, real conversation going on that people start to understand you better. And that's what I'm looking for for my donors, not this sort of hands-off whether, whether they're, I think of them like an ATM, you know, just getting money out of it, and, but they're very impersonal. Uh, that, yes? That ATM um, comment strikes a chord with me. Um, I was at Thank you. I was at um, the NPO briefing that the Arts Council ran last week, and it, it's become clear that we're going to have, um, you know, more criteria, more things that we have to deliver in order to account for our public money, and I've obviously been talking to my organisation about this. And some, a member of staff said, oh, you know, it fills me with fear. And, and I thought that was really interesting, actually, because, um, you know, I do think because we've been publicly, you know, funded and state funded for so long, um, you know, sometimes we do view the funding system as an ATM. And I think the cultural shift that needs to happen in my organisation and possibly others is not just about looking to other places, but um, thinking about that funding relationship in a more transactional way, that um, we have to do something back. Clearly, I agree with that. I, 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 sorry, I did have a question, which is how sure. do you engender that cultural shift? Or have you never come across people who no, felt no, that way? No, no, I do. I, I think the way you, 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 you make that cultural change happen is by showing the success of the new way. Nothing succeeds like success in fundraising. I have seen whole organizations change their whole culture about fundraising. And, buy into this kind of more integrated approach when they see it working and they see money coming and also they go, ooh, it works and I can do the work I want to do. Number eight, very important, and I'd say especially important in England, which is donors respond to positive information, not threats of bankruptcy or lots of whinging. <laughs> and the reason I say 
especially in England, is I find a lot of arts organizations in my country too, but especially in your, in your country, who are willing to talk openly into the press about every single problem you're facing <laughs> and to use it as a way of venting. When I got to the Royal Opera House, I made exactly one requirement before I took the job. Not that I was anything so special, but I don't think many people wanted the job at the time. And I, I said the one thing I wanted was no one's going to talk to the press but me until I say so. Because what was happening was lots of board members and lots of staff members were talking to the press every day. And every day there was a story in a newspaper, this is going wrong at the Opera House, this is going wrong at the Opera House, this is going wrong at the Opera House. You can't raise money in that environment. We've got to be talking about the great stuff we're planning. We've got to talk about all the wonderful things we're doing for our community. That's got to be our public message, not can you believe the bad decision that was made, or they wasted this money, or they did this wrong, or this is thrown into chaos. We were thrown into chaos at the Opera House every day, according to the press, with something happening. We, we have to start thinking about the news we're spreading out. I'm not saying a lack of transparency. I believe we have an obligation to solve our problems, not an obligation to talk about them. And it's a difference. So please think about that. And if you're in an organization that's constantly talking publicly, not just to the press, but to donors and to the audience about all the problems, you're really not going to have an easy time doing fundraising. In large measure, because people look to our industry to entertain them, to inspire them. They look at us as, as places of respite. They don't want to come and hear us whinge and whinge and whinge and whinge. And we're not fulfilling our function. Okay, number nine. Corporate donors particularly, specifically, are looking for visibility. We have to appreciate this. And when we approach corporations, we can't write one proposal and just change the name of the company on it and send it to the next company and change the name of the company on it and send it to the next company. Each proposal has to be tailored to the specific strategy of that company and why, how we feel we can help them create visibility. That's why sport does so well with corporations. They take a lot of time and energy to study the business strategy. It's easy to do. Just go to Google. Google the name of the company and the strategy. And you'll find and you'll read a lot and you'll get a sense of what is this corporation trying to do? Who are they trying to reach? Is my organization a good one to help them or not? If so, great. I read the business section first thing every day. I like to see who's moving into my city. Which corporation? I like to get to them first and early, before any of the other organizations do. And say, we're going to help you build visibility in Washington. I, here's what we're going to do for you. This, 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 and this. But it's specific for them. So please, in your corporate proposals, yes, have a description of your organization, and yes, have a description of a project, and yes, have a budget, but yes, also have a visibility plan written just for that company. What are you going to do for them? I promise you, you will do better with corporations if you do that, if you're not doing that already. And if you're sending out a generic proposal, we'll put you in the bottom of our program and on a banner. It's not enough anymore. Corporations are looking for much more than that. And they're making harder decisions now because they have scrutiny from shareholders who no longer live in the community. They're shareholders now worldwide, and they don't care so much about your community. So they have to please a whole lot of masters who are looking at the bottom line, which means you have to produce for them. You can't just, you can't just um, put their name on a program. If you're really good at your own institutional marketing, you're going to have an easier time getting corporate gifts. And my favorite example of that is going back to Alvin Ailey. You know, I showed you all the things we did at Alvin Ailey. 
to get ourselves more known. Literally, the month after this gala, American Express called up and said, we would like to have a whole campaign of television, radio, newspaper, magazine ads based on Alvin Ailey. We're going to, because you've done such a good job creating your own image, we want to lever off of that. And Ailey got a big chunk of money and visibility off of that. So if you do great institutional marketing, you're so much more likely to get corporate gifts. I promise you.